This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today we are here to discuss UFC Fight Night, Alexander Gustafsson versus Anthony Smith. It was the battle of a tall, lanky range fighter versus a taller, lanky range fighter. Both of them had their last fight and their last losses against John Jones. And both of them were completely shut down. So Paul, tell me how Smith, the smaller fighter, won this fight. Well, when you say smaller fighter, it's not that much of a difference. And it was weird watching Anthony Smith and Alexander Gustafson go at it because for the majority of the fight, Alexander Gustafson was winning. And it was actually a botched takedown into judo throw attempt that gave Anthony Smith the opening that he needed. I wrote about it in the preview that Alexander Gustafson has all the tools to make it more or less an easy night for him. But he can't take his foot off the gas for a second because an opening is all Anthony Smith really needs in order to capitalize, and he did so in this fight. Now, it took him until round four to get it, in which he sunk in a rear naked choke after some ground and pound. But it just goes to show you, especially when you're up against at least the top five in any division, you have to mind your P's and Q's or else you can lose at any moment. So both fighters started off orthodox, although there was stance switching from both fighters from time to time. It wasn't as noticeable as when Dominic Cruz, Demetrius Johnson, or Max Holloway does it. But at the same time, it's still nice to see it coming from bigger men. And when they do use it, It doesn't seem as if it's part of a greater movement. It's just more of something that they do in order to throw off each other. And in the beginning rounds, there's some things that Anthony Smith did that I liked. But overall, you could tell it was Alexander Gustafson's fight to lose, which he unfortunately did. And he paced himself fairly well. And you could see that Anthony Smith was trying to corner and cut off the cage against Alex. He started off with some initial hip feints, and then that disappeared very quickly. And unfortunately, just like in the John Jones fight, he was still chasing him for the most part. Now, his best punches were the big overhands where he got Gus sent off in a corner, which is very reminiscent of what Roy Nelson was very famous for. And Anthony Smith said after the fight, that he hurt his left hand early on. And it was a shame because it was the best punch that he had. And it was also the one that was landing the most frequently against Alexander Gustafson. Now, when a long-rangey outfighter like Gustafson likes picking apart his opponents, he does get more susceptible to punches that are closer in range. And you saw that with the left hook. Now, when Gustafson was charging forward, One of the things that tactically I thought you could do is try to use lateral movement in order to draw them away from certain attacks that they do. But Smith would still back straight up, which 
did give him some problem and caused him to take more damage than he should have. And it also, unfortunately, led to Anthony Smith eating a lot of low kicks that he probably shouldn't have and, frankly, didn't really have to. Alexander Gustafson faints constantly and uses movement to confuse Anthony Smith. And even though he had the cardio to withstand in round one and two, it caught up to him in round three when Gustafson started unloading and flowing much better with combinations. Now, by the end of round two, Anthony Smith's senses were almost completely dulled, and he wasn't able to tell which of Gustafson's strikes were feints and which ones are real attacks that came in. So when Gustafson would come up with double, triple jabs, and then he finally started throwing the uppercuts, as well as mixing in takedowns, it was harder for him to gauge what was a real attack and what wasn't. And his best punches and best strikes overall were the overhand right and the left hook. And anything that he has where he threw with less tail or with straight speed, Gustafson just either ate or backed off and reset. Whenever they did get into that brawling range, Smith has just a bit more experience than Gustafson. And Gustafson got uncomfortable quickly. And then he realized, all right, I don't need to be here. I'm going to back off and start picking you apart again. And when it gets to the pot shot range, Gustafson has more experience and it favors his frame to act as a sniper more than a machine gunner. And whenever Gustafson had his back against the cage and Smith would unload on punches, he would connect and Gustafson didn't have as much mobility and he would have to either engage in a quick grappling match and then separate or realize, all right, I got to get out of here. And then he'll eventually use lateral movement to get out. Now, Smith finally threw more kicks in round three, but he still moved back to evade the majority of Alexander Gustafson's strikes. And by the time round four rolled around, Anthony Smith's corner called him to throw up the volume because he wasn't showing the same amount. Now, in round four, when Gustafson, I don't want to say got cocky, but decided to mix in takedowns because he did have success within round three, when Gustafson went for that botch takedown attempt, Smith countered beautifully, and then Gustafson figured, all right, I'm going to go for a throw. Didn't work, and it's the same takedown that Anthony Smith landed on Ozemir, meaning it wasn't technically great, but it had a lot of power behind it, and it was eventually almost the same way he finished Ozdemir, in that he set up hard ground to pound, made Gustafson shell up, exposed his back, and then took the rear naked choke. And it's a story of Anthony Smith, more or less, at least when he's in a firefight or down on the cards. You can't give him a moment where he can come back because he will absolutely take it. Now, I thought he would get to that place sooner against John Jones, but this is why John Jones is a champion because even for a moment, he won't let up. Whereas, unfortunately, Alexander Gustafson did. Sam, what are your thoughts? I'd have to disagree with your assessment about Smith not being the smaller fighter. I know we are both looking at the same stats. So on the stats, it looks like Anthony Smith is an inch shorter, maybe even a little bit more. And there's a three inch 
reach disparity between the two. But Anthony Smith used to fight at 185, and then he jumped up to 205. And because he fights so often, when he moved up to 205, he never like gave himself time to fill out. You know what I mean? He didn't develop a 205 division body. And then as the light heavyweight, he was so busy and active as a fighter, even taking this fight not that long after the John Jones fight, he still didn't develop that light heavyweight body. So as far as frame, perhaps they're not that far apart. But because of that, I think just visibly, they look much different in size. One looked like a heavyweight and the other one looked like the division below. Because Alexander Gustafson, even in the light heavyweight division, was one of the bigger guys. And that's important to note because of how Alexander Gustafson fights. Alexander Gustafson, even though he has the height advantage, stands more upright, especially between the two fighters. And that's good if you want more mobility. But one of the things that happens is because you're standing more upright, you're standing kind of straight up when punches are coming at you. And sometimes when you're trying to mix in longer range, shorter range strikes, your ability to change up the distance, it becomes obvious or you have to take such a long step forward to start hitting with your longer range strikes. So one of the things that has plagued Gustafson in his career is because even though he is a long fighter and he's a boxer, because of the uprightness of his stance, and because of the way he moves laterally, he's never been able to use his jab that effectively. He uses it, but not as well as somebody with his boxing background and his height should be able to use it. Now, as I mentioned, Alexander Gustafson relies heavily on his movement, especially the lateral. So what he loses, he gains because of his fighting style. He likes to be the more mobile fighter, shuffling from side to side. What he doesn't do to complement that nimble footwork is going forward or angling, pivoting, or having the same kind of movement dexterity going backwards. He's often caught moving laterally, and he edges closer and closer to the cage until he's pinned up, in which case he takes a couple shots before he ducks and jogs away, turning his back to the opponent. Now, turning his back to the opponent while he's up against the fence is a pattern for him. He does this standing, and later I'll mention how he does this on the ground as well. But the reason why I was mentioning his size is because he doesn't use his size to his advantage. He doesn't bully people. He doesn't pressure them. He doesn't muscle people around. He'd rather outsmart his opponents. And that's good, but it's good to use your size as well. So instances that bigger fighters like to use their size and weight. Clinch. That's one of the areas that Gustafson almost always avoids. A fighter who uses their size well, even though they have their own particular flaws, is Darren Till. Where Darren Till will use his size alone to back his opponents up. He doesn't even throw that many strikes. But just because of his sheer size and his forward pressure, he backs them up against the cage. So as the bigger fighter, what you want to do is apply more forward pressure. or you could be the matador, like a John Jones, and control the center of the octagon. Now, with that said, one of the clever parts of Gustafson's lateral movement is to use directional changes as feints. And what I mean by that is, 
is he'll get his opponents to commit to the wrong direction. In which case, Gustafsson likes to come in with the long uppercut. So as the bigger, taller fighter, it's interesting out of all the strikes, his preferential strike is the long uppercut. It's not wrong. It's worked well for him. He's knocked people out with it. It's just not the one you would see with somebody with his advantages. Usually, an uppercut is a shorter, smaller fighter's preferred weapon. But the genius of Alexander Gustafsson is the way he lifts his legs, his hand movement, his hip feints, along with, like I mentioned, how he changes directions. This is Gustafsson's system to bait opponents to overcommit and run into his punches. That's Gus at his best. But being the taller fighter, and especially because of his upright stance and Anthony Smith's lowered stance, Gus has even more height advantage. And even though he's primarily a boxer with the height advantage, he doesn't use the jab as much as you would think. Normally, it's more of a pawing jab to get a reaction or to cover their eyes or to move his opponent's defense out of the way for the uppercut. But Gus likes to invest in a lot of feints, which is good for down the line. But it does mean he risks losing the first couple of rounds. And in this stage of his career, rather than relying on boxing, he's become a lot more kick-heavy. And his kicks are more straight-line kicks. So there are push kicks, front kicks, and side kicks. Then the occasional low kick. But it's rare to see him throw a round kick to the body or head. And I think it's because he's afraid of being taken down. And this does create a problem where there isn't enough variety or dynamism in his attacks. And so the way he likes to throw these straight line, more pitter-pat shots, it's the striking version of spam. He's spamming his opponents, just trying to rack up points through volume. But because it is pitter-patter, it doesn't cause his opponents to overreact, which could be a nice way on top of his feints to set up his power shots. And especially in this fight, Gustafsson threw more feints and light pot shots than he actually committed to his strikes. But the good thing about Gustafsson is he's very patient. And so because he's patient and he likes to spam you, he's a very frustrating person to fight. And this is all part of his system. He does this to annoy you. So you either A, overcommit like Glover Teixeira or just stand there looking to counter, in which case Gus can go from light, light to all of a sudden heavy. Gus also does good work mixing up his low and high attacks. But again, rarely a body shot and rarely does he throw round kicks, just straight line. So you can block a lot of his shots with a shield, with your hands or just lifting a leg. And Smith did a good job not biting on the majority of Gustafson's system of feints. And Gus wasn't getting the reactions he wanted. So there was a lack of countering and commitment from Gustafson. It was a very defensive Gus for the first half of the fight. And in range, especially in this fight, Gustafson began to fight like Wonder Boy, except he's the big guy and he's not a karate champion with a million kicks with the lead leg. However, because of everything I said thus far, when he did throw the body kick from the lead side, it caught Anthony Smith by surprise, causing him to bend over in pain. Now, since it was a lead side kick, a switch kick, where he pulls his leg back to throw that lead side with more power, 
After landing that kick, Gus was forced to step forward back into stance, which brought him into clinching range, which, like I said, Gustafson doesn't really like. He still has it in his head. He really doesn't like being taken down, which is a shame because as the bigger, taller fighter, clinch is an area where he would benefit massively. And if you're a big fighter, clinch is something you want to work a lot. It's a way to make the opponent tired. It's a way to put your weight on them. You can muscle them around. And since you're taller, you have the height advantage to push their head down, push really your upper body down on them and aim knees up into them or push them down as you aim punches up into them. But in this range, rather than messing around in the clinch, Gustafson immediately wraps Smith up in a body lock and outside tripped him to the ground, which is a good move. But otherwise, like I said, Gus tends to avoid things that might get him taken down and stuck on the bottom. It still feels like after all these years, even after Phil Davis, he's still afraid of being on bottom. And that's the thing I was wondering during this fight. Is that fight against Phil still in his head? His loss against John Jones, where he was finished on the ground? Is that still in his head? Daniel Cormier also did the same thing, grounding him down. Or is that not in his head so much as it's still a weakness? But Gustafson will engage in a takedown if he believes he can end up on top. So if he can be on top on the ground, he'll take it. And so from that body lock, that's where he was. On top of Anthony Smith. On side mount. Throwing elbows. But there wasn't enough time to really hurt him. But now he felt it. He had his hands around Anthony Smith and he felt him and saw how easy it was to take him down. So in the next round, it wasn't surprising that after some pitter-patter strikes, tripling up with jabs and throwing some hooks, really to get Smith to cover up and his hands out of position, Gus went for a takedown. And even seemingly out of position because Gus fights so far out that by the time he got close enough to grab him for a takedown, Anthony Smith already got the underhooks. And so Anthony Smith has double underhooks on Gustafson. And so I think Gustafson was afraid of being taken down. So he reacted right away with a Uchimata with an overhook. And it didn't work. So they both fell towards the cage with Smith on top. Now, right up against the cage, the classic defense is the cage walk. And what that means is to put your back up against the fence and stand up. And the reason why you would do that is because then if your back is against the fence, there's no way anybody can get behind you. You just have to worry about what's in front of you. And this is something MMA fighters draw all the time. But instead of doing that, he turned to all fours, turning his back to the opponent. Just the same way he does when he's standing and he gets pinned up against the cage. And just the way he does when he jogs away, when he got on all fours, there was no sense of urgency. He was almost resting. And of course, that gave Smith time to put in the hooks. So now with Smith on his back, if you're the taller fighter like Gustafson, you will want to use your height to your advantage once again by bending over like a forward fold in yoga where you're basically jackknifing your body so your opponent slides off your back. And if you want, you can even grab your opponent's head and yank them down. But rather than being in the TP position, Gus was spread out. And a lot of that, yes, had to do with Anthony Smith. But what you shouldn't do when you're spread out is to grab your opponent's head and try to yank them down. This isn't the position to do it. Because if you're spread out, pulling their head will collapse your own base. And that's what happened. Gustafson pulled 
until he basically flattened himself out. He was helping Anthony Smith. And from there, completely flattened out, the end was academic. It was punches to choke. And after the fight, Gustafson said part of why he was retiring was because he was making dumb mistakes he shouldn't be making, like rolling over to all fours. And the unfortunate part of all this is if Alexander Gustafson does actually retire, the light heavyweight division lost that much more depth, making it, in my estimation, the worst division in the UFC, worse than the heavyweight division. What do you think, Paul? I agree with all your assessment of Alexander Gustafson. And even though I think he had a little more pop in his jab than your assessment of the pitter-patter, I was surprised and pleasantly so at his lack of uppercuts because he was going kind of uppercut heavy in the Glover fight and he might have been spooked a little bit in the John Jones fight. So it was good to see him be a little bit more thoughtful with the jab. No, he definitely had the jab, but you saw it more in rounds, I would say, three especially, and then a little bit in round four. I think he really invests a lot of his time in the first two rounds, just fainting. That's it to look for a finish later on. Or that was his plan in this fight. Yeah, and it was smart because, as I mentioned in round three, Anthony Smith's senses seemed completely dulled, and he didn't know what to expect, and he would just kind of stand there at times and just kind of take it. And there was that moment, I believe, in round one, where Smith completely whiffed on an overhand where Gustafson just ducked under, and then he looked stunned for a second, like, I can't believe I fell for that. And one thing that I do like about Gustafson's jab is that, as you said, because it lacks a lot of power, he can be non-committal with it. But there's a lot of follow-up, whether it's a push kick or a straight right, which hurts Smith in, I believe, the third round. And I, and I think if this Gustafson showed up against the second John Jones fight, it would have been a much more entertaining affair. But I think Alexander Gustafson's uh, assessment of himself was right. He, he was turning the fight into his fight, even though maybe he could have given up the first two rounds. But he wanted to give it up because he was investing for later in the fight to finish Anthony Smith. And it looked like he was heading that way. The momentum seemed to be going that way. And then once it hit the ground, it's not like he sucks on the ground, but a fighter of his caliber, even if he makes a mistake, should be able to come back from his mistake. And it seems like where his mind is at right now, even stylistically, maybe the style is the, the style that could give John Jones a harder time. I don't know if he's mentally there. And obviously, he must not be if he retired right after this fight to beat a John Jones. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like you mentioned, the division is a lot weaker for it because when you go down that line, who's really left now? Dominic Reyes? Ozdemir, who's on a three-fight skid. Thiago Santos, who is fighting John Jones soon, but he himself admitted, yeah, I don't have a lot of ways to win. If I don't knock him out, then that's kind of it. Johnny Walker? Yeah, who's what, like 3-0 and in the division? Well, that's the thing, right? If you're 3-0 and in the division, you go from unranked to top five. <laughs> so I think in that sense, Luke Rockwell has the right idea by moving up. He figured, well, all I really need to do is win maybe two or three, and then boom, another title fight, and I don't have to kill myself cutting weight. And I think more middleweights 
might have an easier chance. And I think more middleweights might have an easier time at light heavyweight, not against John Jones, but at getting title shots. Because at that point, it's not as crowded and they don't have to worry about the drama that is the Robert Whitaker saga where he might get hurt. Now he has to fight Israel. Well, what if that fight doesn't go through? What's going to happen? As opposed to, let me just move on up. Even if it's one fight that they win impressively, it could catapult them to a title shot. And why not? Yeah. And I hope Alexander Gustafson doesn't really retire. I hope he changes his mind. And instead of coming back to the light heavyweight division, I hope he moves up to the heavyweight division. I think he's been better suited for the heavyweight division for quite some time just because of all the things that don't make sense with his style in the light heavyweight division. Meaning, being the bigger guy, it doesn't make sense not to use your size advantage. But if you're in the heavyweight division, you're not the bigger guy, then it makes sense that you use your nimbleness and you already don't have a habit of trying to use your size to muscle people in the heavyweight division. It just seems like a lot more upside. And especially because... Gustafson does seem to have an iron head. He got finished by Rumble Johnson with strikes from standing, but that's Rumble Johnson. I don't think that says anything about his head. I think he still has a really good chin. I think he could do really well in the heavyweight division using his nimbleness and his speed and just the way he faints. I don't know if there's other heavyweight fighters who faints like him. So all the things that don't make sense are his strengths at heavyweight. You know, I'm not sold on a lot of fighters thinking changing weight divisions will revive their career, but I think something like a weight change just because of his style just makes so much more sense for Alexander Gustafson. I think you're on the right track because also it gives a little bit more fresh blood into the heavyweight division where the average age for a while was like closer to 40 than 30. And even though Alexander Gustafson might struggle against the wrestlers of the division, like a Daniel Cormier, a Curtis Blades, he might be able to be quick enough to just outpace him. I want to see him fight that style change where he's no longer the big guy. Because that's the thing that made him good, right? Everybody's like, he's a big guy, but he fights like a small guy. Well, in the heavyweight division, he really will be now the small guy fighting like a small guy against big heavyweights. And so now he's that much faster than them. He's that much more mobile than them. I want to see that. I want to see that clash of styles. I think he'd be a lot more entertaining at the heavyweight division. But with that said, Paul, what do you got coming up for us? So next week, we have Triple G fighting against Steve Rolls. And I did a breakdown. And even though Steve Rolls is the opponent, we all know that the larger fight that Triple G wants in his near future is the third Canelo fight. Now, as one of our Discord members, Rondé, pointed out, Canelo has all the incentives to not immediately rematch Triple G, but it doesn't mean that the zone won't push for it. And in early July, there's a ton of exciting fights coming from the UFC. So the next preview I have coming up is for Henry Cejudo versus Marlon Moraes and Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica I. That's actually a stacked card. Even a lot of the main event fights, they could headline fight night. I think Aljamain Sterling is fighting Pedro Munoz. That could headline a card. So there's a lot of fun fights. I don't know how many of these you're going to cover, but we're going to cover all the exciting ones that we think are going to be worth mentioning after the event. So if you guys don't know, 
if you're part of the Bad Mighty 50, meaning one of our Patreon sponsors, you'll get access to Paul's previews of upcoming cards where he breaks down everything he sees. He does the pre-fight analysis. And then after the fight, we talk about it here in our fight study. Now, as for me, what I got coming up is I was able to talk to actually a serious journalist from Salon.com, and I got him to talk to me about the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, in particular, the Avengers, and we just kind of geeked out. So you'll be hearing that soon. And we talk a little bit about DC and some of the other comic books as well. So especially a fun one for the nerds out there, but also people who want to use pop cultural references to learn about economics and politics. So with all that said, make sure you keep listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your friends about Southpaw. If you're not supporting the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only will you get access to Paul's previews of upcoming fights, but you'll also be able to get access to our Discord channel, which I think me and Paul are on it 24-7. We're talking on there just all the time with the other Bad Mighty 50. So yeah, join us. Otherwise, please, please, please don't make us beg. Not only because we need the money, because we need the money, but we're lonely people. We want to talk to you on the Discord. And for those of you who don't know, Discord is a private chat channel because we don't want Mark Zuckerberg listening to us or selling our information in the dark web. So yeah, please join us. But otherwise, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye.